I'm glad that you're here. My name is Steve. I'm the pastoral assistant. If I haven't met you, I would absolutely love to meet you. Uh, we are currently going through a series called The Places of Christmas. And before I forget, we are having worship services next Sunday on Christmas morning. So if you're in town, uh, I know many of you will be traveling, but we would love uh, to have you here worshiping with us. So I don't know if that's been made officially clear. So let me just make that clear that uh, we will be here next week. Um, as we've been going through our series on the places of Christmas, what we've seen is that even in the, the greatest, most looked for and looked at event in history, the birth of the Messiah, the birth of the God-man, God uses the most ordinary, the most mundane the broken and dirty and unworthy things of this world to bring about his plan. And this morning we're going to be looking at Egypt, a refugee Christmas. So let me read our passage and pray for us and we'll get started. This is the fifth lesson from Matthew chapter 2. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we are gathered together because you have come. You have burst into our world in a most unexpected way. And even as we gather, our hearts are so often filled with heaviness as we see the darkness of this world, as we see the pain and death and war that continues to ravage this planet and even our own families, our own souls, our own hearts. I ask this morning that we would see your light clearly, that we would feel your embrace close that you would whisper to us of your love, of what you are doing in this world. I ask that your spirit would be present and that we would hear your voice this morning. I ask this in your name. Amen. I think it's safe to say that at this point, Joseph and Mary are starting to figure out that being Messiah parents is not really going to get them into the VIP lounge. It's not getting them a lot of perks at this point. Things haven't been super great. They've, they've had to travel uh, while pregnant. Uh, I imagine that's not that fun. They gave birth in a barn, which uh, for those of you that are city folk, that sounds really nice and very quaint and, and sweet hay, but I doubt that it was anything quite so lovely. And as we see this morning, there is no rest for the weary. Joseph is warned in a dream, and by this time, he's somewhat of an expert of being spoken to by angels in dreams, and he's warned that uh, he must take Mary and Jesus and flee before the wrath of Herod strikes against them. 
And it seems that rather than even waiting until morning, he, he rouses his family in the middle of the night, probably packs up what few belongings they had there in Bethlehem, and they hit the road for Egypt. And as predicted, Herod unleashes a terror. And I think it's here in this passage that we really see, uh, perhaps more starkly than, than even in the barn birth accounts, that God's plan doesn't seem to resemble anything of idealism. The Messiah has been born. In, in the, the uh, lighting of the candle readings that we had, we heard from Luke that at his birth, the angels came down and sang and declared, peace on earth, peace on earth, and there is anything but. It's here that we have a glimmer of how God works through death to bring life. Herod is a, a tyrant's tyrant. He's one of those neurotic types who holds on to power because of fear and insecurity. Uh, he's one of the early developers of cement boots. I'm pretty sure he, he gave a pair to his brother-in-law. They made it look like a drowning accident, but he wanted him gone. Herod had two of his own sons strangled to death because he was afraid that they were going to try and take his power away from him. On his own deathbed, he ordered that, that other officials in the area be killed as he died so that the nation would be in mourning. Unfortunately for him, they were freed after he died because not everyone else was as insane as him, and so there was actually celebration when he died. It sort of backfired. Suffice it to say, Herod is sort of a nasty character. And we see him striking out, killing every male child two years and younger in the area. Stanley Hauerwas has pointed out that perhaps no event in the gospel more determinatively challenges the sentimental depiction of Christmas than the death of these children. Jesus is born into a world in which children are killed and continue to be killed to protect tyrants. This is where I think those of us that are, that are most familiar with the Christmas story, we, we probably have the most work to do here. It, it's even harder for us to cut through all of the niceties and sentimentalism that so often drives our understanding of texts like these, even when we read what's happening. On the one hand, we have to understand that the world into which Jesus is born is a world of death and destruction. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. But the other hand, we must realize that the terror that Herod unleashes springs from the terror that resides within himself. He himself is feeling some sort of terror from within. And I would submit to you that Herod actually understood the meaning of Christmas at some level better than many of us. If your ideas about Christmas, and by extension, Jesus, serve to reinforce all of your other ideas about the world and your place in it, it could be that you have failed to deal with the Jesus of reality. You see, each of us has set ourselves up as king. We're king of something, no matter how small it may be. Perhaps you're the king of your family. You may be the king of your own time or your bank account. You might be the king of your career or your body image, your political views. You might even just be king of your own lane on the freeway. We all hold on to something as sovereign, refusing to cede control, and we claw and we fight and we scrape to hold on to what little kingdom we can. If you don't see Jesus as a threat to your own sovereignty, your own sense of autonomy, then you haven't understood his message. 
As twisted and perverted as Herod's conception of Jesus was, he at least had this right. If Jesus is king, that means that I'm not. That's a thought that should terrify every single one of us. But this morning, we're not just going to be looking at terror. We're also going to be looking at triumph. And eventually, we're going to look at tension. And Matthew doesn't leave us to wallow in our fear, either of uh, a nasty tyrant out in the world or fear of our own uh, little kingdoms being squashed. He instead points us to the triumph that Christmas signifies. Throughout his gospel, Moses, or, uh, Moses, Matthew will continue to throw out allusions and hints to his audience. And his audience would have been very, very familiar with the Jewish scriptures. And they would, have, they would have seen that what Matthew was trying to do is, is set up that in the person of Jesus, all of the history, all of the hopes of Israel are being met. Jewish people at this time would have been very, very familiar with the life of Moses. Moses was the prophet of Israel. He is the one who led the people of God out of slavery into the promised land. He is the one who spoke with God face to face, unlike any other prophet in Israel's history. And the Jewish scriptures promised that there would one day come a prophet greater than Moses. And for centuries, the people have been waiting and waiting and waiting, and he never shows up. And so now, Matthew, it's, it's like he's winking at us and saying, it's him, it's Jesus, this is the guy. And so in this story that we have before us, we see parallels. When Moses was born, an evil king threatened to kill all of the male children. When Jesus was born, an evil king threatens to kill all of the male children in the area. But Moses is hidden and spared. Jesus takes flight and is hidden in Egypt and spared. Moses spends his childhood as a refugee of sorts in Egypt. Jesus spends part of his childhood as a refugee in Egypt and then as any good Jewish person would know, Moses grows up and is called by God to lead his people out of slavery. It's as if Moses is putting together a puzzle and he's leaving the last piece out and he's asking us to fill it in. He's asking us to see the final piece, the triumph in Jesus. And he doesn't just do this by setting up Jesus as the new Moses. He does it in several different ways just in this one passage. So you'll notice that I included the Old Testament passages in our earlier lessons that Moses, or that, sorry, I'm going to keep doing that, that Matthew quotes in this passage this morning. Because as Matthew is crafting this history of the birth of the true king of God's people, it's a birth that's shrouded in darkness and death, and yet Matthew is tying it back time and time again to all the promises that God had made throughout the centuries. So Matthew first quotes from Hosea 11. He tells us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophet's statement that out of Egypt, God has called his son. And in doing so, he is setting up Jesus as the new Israel, the true Israel. But it's not just that Jesus redoes all of the things that Israel did like some sort of game show. Rather, in Egypt, Jesus is a refugee and he is taking on the slavery of Israel, the slavery of God's people and making way for freedom. And so when Matthew quotes for us just one verse from Hosea 11, what he's wanting us to do is go back and look at that entire chapter. He's alluding to the entire thing, and he's saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of it. Jesus is the lion who roars and brings all of his children to him from all corners of the earth. 
He is the one who makes possible the healed relationship between man and God. So when Matthew then goes and quotes from Jeremiah 31, he is, he's using an ancient form of commentary. So here he's just told us that Herod has murdered who knows how many little boys, all the little boys in the area. And he, he decides to comment on it by using an ancient, ancient text of Israel's history from another time of sadness, the time of exile. And in this portion of Jeremiah, the prophet, Jeremiah uses Rachel to signify the mother of all Israel. And here she is weeping as the people are going into exile. The, the town of Ramah was on the road to exile as, as Assyria was carrying off God's people. Uh, Jeremiah is, is suggesting that here is the mother of all these people standing there weeping, weeping and weeping. Through the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, God had been warning his people over and over and over that if they continued to walk apart from him, they would be exiled from the land of promise. If we were to continue looking at the different uh, prophetic ideas in the Old Testament, we would find that the exile that the people of Israel experience is far more than just geographic exile. It doesn't end when they come back to the land. In fact, even in, in our passage this morning, at the birth of Jesus, the people are still in a sort of exile as the Roman Empire has them firmly under their thumb. But when, Moses, or when Matthew points us to Jeremiah, is anyone keeping track how many times I'm going to call Matthew Moses? Somebody give me a tally at the end. When Matthew points us to Jeremiah 31, he's trying to get us to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole thing, the whole chapter. Jesus is the one who will set up the new covenant. Jesus is the one who will take on the exile of his people in order to end exile for people from every nation. In Jesus, even as this little child who relies on his mother for life, there is triumph. God is beginning to triumph over the darkness, even in the midst of murderous darkness while the mothers of Israel are weeping unconsolably, the triumph of God's love and his peace is taking root. But this is where this passage points out to us, I think, in no uncertain terms, the tension in which we all live. On the one hand, Jesus has come. His advent is very real. The freedom and peace promised by God are taking root, and the triumph of Jesus over the forces of darkness and death and sin are sure. His triumph is absolutely sure. That's what Matthew wants us to see here. And yet, we live in a world of tyrants and terror. Death and disease swim about us, smelling our weakness, circling like sharks in the water. We have seasons of happiness and joy, and they're followed quickly by times of stress, sadness, poverty, and sickness. What are we to make of this? How do we make sense of a world that still seems to go so sideways, even though the king has already shown up? You can imagine Mary and Joseph were probably asking themselves that very question. We've just been told that our son is the Messiah, and yet here we are fleeing from a tyrant. If you are in him, if you are in Jesus, if you have already placed your faith in him and been brought near by his blood, if you've already recognized him as king, then you now walk with him in an exile that is coming to an end. In many ways, you are a refugee in this world, much like your king was a refugee in Egypt. You are a people living in the time between times, caught between two worlds. 
The two worlds are the realms of heaven and earth. And for those of you that are a part of Jesus' church, you are an outpost of the heavenly world, the heavenly realm, the heavenly reality, and you are dwelling upon this earth. You are a people of the new exodus. And yes, there is still death and darkness, but the light has dawned and the light of Jesus is overcoming the darkness. Perhaps you would say that that you're not quite sure, though. You're not sure if Jesus is who he says he is. You haven't yet been given that gift of faith, and you have yet to see him as king and join join yourself to his people. This whole thing may seem scary and uncomfortable. And in fact, I think all of us should feel a little uncomfortable because we all get angry when someone is trying to take us off the throne of our own lives. When you think about giving control of your life to Jesus, you might not turn into Herod and go around murdering babies, but it can still be a very, very frightening thought. If that's where you are this morning, I can tell you, the promise of Jesus isn't to make your life better and easier and happier. The promise of Jesus is that he will enter your death and bring about life. The promise of Jesus is that he will remove the weight of a kingship that was never meant to be yours to begin with. A kingship that, when is seen for what it is, is revealed to be nothing more than slavery. The promise of Jesus is that when you have him as your king, you have freedom. Friends, in Jesus, the whole idea of kingship has been transformed. His is a kingdom the likes of which this world has never seen. He, t- he defeats his enemies by taking their punishment upon himself. He defeats his enemies by making them into his friends. He is a king who was born a refugee, a king familiar with suffering. He is not a far-off king. He is an earthy king, a humble king. He inhabits our places of darkness. He inhabits our places of hiding. And rather than stand out on the edges and call us out and try and remove us from darkness, he instead removes the darkness from us. The light of his love burns brighter and brighter, and the darkness is dispelled further and further away. This is the king that we have. He's born into a world of terror, and yet his triumph is sure, and now he asks us to, in faith, walk with him through a world of tension. Let's pray together. Jesus, uh, Christmas time can be a time of mixed emotions. Um, There is joy and and memory and laughter and family, and yet so many of these things can be painful reminders of the dysfunction of our world, the dysfunction of our own hearts. I ask this morning that as we come to your table, that you would be made real to us, that you would feed us, that you would give us a gift of, of true faith and sight to be able to see that you are working in our world. Your triumph is sure, and we can rest in you. I pray this in your name. Amen.